0: He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. If you have been following this series up to this point, you may have wondered about the extravagant, extravagant descriptions of the church. Just a sampling from the first three chapters. Paul has already told us God gave Christ, who is the head of all things, to be head of the church as well. That through the church, the wisdom of God is made known to the the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places. That we are able to grasp the immensity of the love of Christ together with the church. And last week we saw that God's glory is evident forever in the church. And so we hear these extravagant statements and then we kind of look around at each other and say, yeah, right. Are you serious? The church? You mean the church that, as I've experienced, the church is all those things? And so we might find something of a disconnect. Some people have suffered in the church. Some people have had very bad experiences in the church. And so when they hear these these extravagant descriptions of the church, it's it's hard to get their 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 minds around these others maybe haven't had bad experiences so much in the church but they're but their adherence of of this brand of religion that has been that has been created in the US it goes by the name of christianity but it has relegated the church to an optional sort of situation so maybe it's not a bad experience that you've had but you perhaps bought into this this individualistic Western Christianity where the church is, is a, a nice add-on when it's convenient or perhaps helpful for you. Now, my own experience in the church in these some 40 years in the church has been overwhelmingly positive. Overwhelmingly positive. When, when I hear the word church, I get good thoughts. I love the church and I'm thankful for the church. It has been a wonderful experience for me. But even so, even so, for those of us who, by God's grace, have, have not had terrible experiences in the church, who understand that the church is not an optional add-on for the Christian life, who have had wonderful experiences, even for us, when we read these descriptions in Ephesians 1-3 to of the church, we still have a disconnect, because there still seems to be a gap between even our most positive experiences of the church and the, the outrageously extravagant descriptions of the church that we have in chapters 1 to 3. Well, all that is to say, that's why we need chapters 4 to 6. That's why we need chapters 4 to 6. Because this this apparent discrepancy uh, is the reason that we have all of the, the exhortations, the instructions, the commands of chapters 4 to 6. You may have noticed in chapters 1 to 3, that Paul didn't tell us basically to do anything. He didn't tell us to do anything. He wanted us to know. He wanted us to believe. He wanted us to to appreciate, to comprehend. And now you will notice a change in the way he addresses us. Now he begins to say, now here's some things to do. Here's some things to do. Now you have heard what Christ has done. And you have heard this, this amazing position in which he has placed the church in his plan for all the ages. And now he's saying, now it's time to live up to that. And here's how you do it. And that's what we're going to be seeing in these next chapters. He calls us in the second half to be what we are already described to be in the first half. And that's the pivot here. The I therefore. Therefore refers to everything that has come heretofore because of all of these thing, these things that we've seen in chapters 1 to 3, the, 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 the incomprehensible love of God in Jesus Christ, because of all of this, therefore, and he says, I urge you to walk, to walk. And he, he did refer to the fact that, that we used to walk in the ways of the world. We used to walk under the power of darkness. And then he says, We were were called out of that, and he's given us good works in which to walk. And now he's going to describe those works for us in which we are to walk. The first verse really summarizes chapter one, I'm sorry, chapters one to three and chapters four to six. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Chapters 1 to 3, the calling to which you have been called. You want to know what the calling to which you have been called is? Read chapters 1 to 3. And then chapters 4 to 6, I urge you to walk in accordance with that calling to which you have been called. Now, the rest of the letter will provide more specific instructions. Today's instructions tend to be rather general, and then he fleshes them out in, in very concrete relationships. But I do want you to notice that there are four general emphases here, Uh, in order to walk in a worthy manner, according to this calling that we've received. And all of these emphases are relational. They're all relational. That is, we live these out in relationship to one another. In other words, that, that, that version of Christianity that is individualistic is a false version because you cannot be a private Christian. There is no such thing a disconnected, lone ranger, individualistic Christian because most of the things we're told to do as Christians have to do with our relationships with one another. We need each other to fulfill this walk, to to walk in the manner that is worthy of the calling that we have received. Now, what are the four emphases? They were very countercultural in the first century with the Roman Empire in dominance. And it's it's quite amazing that far from being embarrassed about these quali- qualities, uh, the, the, the Christians put these qualities forward as positive things. And the first one, it says, walk in a manner in which you have been called, verse one, verse two, with all humility, humility, lowly mindedness. And that was an insult in the Roman Empire. That was something you wanted to avoid at all costs. That was a despised characteristic in the Roman culture. And in some ways to this day, although because of Christianity's influence, there is at least a a feigned humility that that has some some merit in, in our society. But what is humility? It is literally lowly mindedness. And we learn what it is by looking at Jesus because he described himself that way as one who was humble and meek. What did he do? How did he, how did he show that humility? It wasn't so much a psychological category. It was how he treated others. That is, he put others' needs before his own. He reduced himself to exalt other people. That's humility. And, and, and it's saying, first of all, in all humility and gentleness. Gentleness, what is gentleness? We'll look at Jesus once again. How did Jesus treat the weak. And there you see a picture of gentleness. How did he treat the outcast? How did he treat the sick? How did he treat the leper? How did he treat the widow? How did he treat them? And there you see kindness to the weak and needy is gentleness. And then patience. Patience could also be translated perseverance. It's stick-to-itiveness. It is continuing on in difficult situations. And then the final one is bearing with one another in love. And that is exceedingly, exceedingly realistic because it assumes that there are people in the church who rub you the wrong way. It, it, it assumes that there are people in the church with whom you don't click and, and they may even irritate you and you may even irritate them. And and, and this is a very realistic and, and very lofty calling, isn't it? It is to continue to love those people. Not just the ones that are your best buds, but love those people and to continue to bear up with them. And then in verse three, we get the what ties this all together or rather the, the result of this. If we're walking in humility, in gentleness, in perseverance, bearing with one, or in, one another in love. And he says eager, and this is a summary statement, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's the result of all these things. They come together in this unity, but it's not a unity that we create. It's a unity that we must maintain. We just need not to mess it up. We don't need to create the unity of the church. That's already been created. Go back to to chapters 1-3. to All that emphasis on Jews and Gentiles brought together in one body, co-equals, co-heirs, co-inheritors of the kingdom of God, the Spirit has already created this unity, folks. Just don't mess it up. Maintain this unity through through the bonds of peace. These are the these are the rope ties of peace. So so there are different activities in which you need to tie things off to make sure they they're secure. I, I we lived in the mountains in, in Mexico and I did some rock climbing. In my younger days, because we had some big rocks there, and uh, lots of rock climbing there and and we had to learn and the first thing we had to learn about rock climbing was how to tie knots so the first training for rock climbing we didn't get on the rocks; we just sat there with harnesses and 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 the, the lines and and we learned how to do these different knots and then there is a there's a protocol when when you're about to climb that climbers use and and the one who's about to climb asks if he is It's on belay. And then what you do if you're doing the right thing, the, the one who's about to, to climb and the one who's about to belay him, that is to secure him or her, you check out each other's knots. You check to make sure that the harness is, is buckled back through. You you check the, the knot on the harness to make sure that it's secure. And, and then the, the the, the other checks the other's knot. So you, you check the whole system. And what whole holds that whole system together? These ties. The, these knots. These, these bonds. And he's saying that's how you do it. You maintain these bonds. You keep the whole system tied together. It's been given to you, all tied up. Just don't untie it. Just keep the system tied together through the bonds of peace. And then he goes on and says that there are are are, our various foundations for for this unity that we've had we've already seen how God's created it brought us together in one body and then then he emphasizes that Uh, in verses three to to six eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and then he goes with a series I think there's seven ones one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Now, it's interesting, the 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 order, and I don't know if we want to make too much of this, but the order in which he approaches God. And we've seen a number of times where there is this Trinitarian approach to God, where there's emphasis on Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We saw that in the opening opening uh, verses. But here we have Father, Son and Holy Spirit, but rather We have Spirit, Son, and Father. And that's interesting, isn't it? This is actually, this is experiential. This is how we encounter God. Whom do we first meet when we become Christians? Even though we don't know it, it is the Spirit who encounters us and draws us to Christ. And then through Christ, we have access to the Father. So really, the, the Christian experience, when we look back on it, is spirit leads us to Christ who gives us access to the father. And that's that, that, that experiential description is what we have here. He's mentioned that the, the spirit has created the unity. And, and now he says there is one body and one spirit. The spirit's the one who created this, this one body of the church. Just as you were called to one hope. And we saw this hope in chapters one to three, the hope that we have that belongs to your call. One Lord. Here's the one Lord Jesus. And by the way, this was a dangerous thing to to affirm in the Roman Empire, that there is one Lord, because the Roman emperors, they, they also thought that there was one Lord, and they thought that they were it. And so for Christians to say, Jesus is Lord, that was a bold and sometimes dangerous and sometimes fatal Thing to affirm and here Paul is writing this putting it down in writing there is one Lord and his name is Jesus but this is also in addition to that this is a theological statement because by by using this word Lord in the New Testament it's using the word that when when the Hebrews would speak Greek when Jews would speak Greek and they would refer to Yahweh they would refer to the true God they would refer to him by this word Lord. So this is not only distinguishing from Caesar, but is also identifying Jesus with God, that he is the one unique Lord. There is one faith, and this probably means one Christian faith, one set of, of beliefs that Christians have. As much as we might differ on some of the, the secondary and third rate sort of ideas, there is one body of belief that Christians have and always have had about God and about Jesus and about salvation and there's one baptism. Now there is controversy about baptism among us, but the point is this go to any Christian church and find out what is the what is the rite, what is the ritual, what is the action that introduces people into the church, and the answer is always the same. It is baptism. There is one baptism. And then the the crown of all this is the crescendo is one God and Father. And here there's some Ambiguity of all who is over all and through all and in all. And these alls could be either masculine, referring to persons, or they could be neuter, referring to things. So he could be saying here, there is one God and Father of all who is over all persons and through all persons and in all persons, or could be saying, who is over all things and through all things and in all things. And we could find justification in other parts of scripture for either one of these i tend to think it's talking about the persons but i'm not sure that is in in all in in, and over all jew and gentile through all jew and gentile in all both jew and gentile and that's the basis so that's a pretty pretty solid basis for unity isn't it Uh, one body one spirit one hope one lord One faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Don't mess it up, folks, because we have a really, really solid foundation for unity that God has created. He's made us one. So let's keep it together. And then he goes on from here and talks about some some practical ways we keep it together. That actually God has gifted the church. He's given gifts to the church so that we might have the means to to maintain and even grow in this unity and here's here's the transition in, in verse 7 to some of those means and he says but god well, i'm sorry but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts and uh, then he talks about some of those gifts and we're going to jump ahead and then go back and those gifts in this context show up in verse 11. Now there are other lists of gifts. This is a, a short list of, list of gifts. And there are other lists of gifts in the New Testament. But here is a short list of gifts. And these short, the short list of gifts focuses on four or maybe five categories of teachers in the church. And these are the gifts to the church. That's saying, it's saying here that Christ gave these gifts to the church for the purpose of, maintaining and growing in this unity. And, and those are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. And the shepherds and the teachers may be one category, they may be two. But now, how did he give these gifts to the church? We'll go back and look at the gifts. But what's the context of the giving of these gifts? There is a, a kind of a surprising and somewhat curious quotation here from Psalm 68. And we already read Psalm piece of Psalm 68 in our Old Testament reading today says that verse 7 grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift therefore it says and this is psalm 68 when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and as we saw from the earlier reading that psalm is about God's victory it is his victory and he has he has ascended and he has conquered over all his enemies and now he is distributing gifts but there is a, a a a change that Paul made in this quotation that has tied scholars in knots for generations and when you go back and look at the original it says when he ascended on high well actually it's directed when you ascended on high you led a host of captives and you received gifts you received gifts and now Paul quotes it and he says And he gave gifts. And like I say, you, there is a huge body of literature about this. Did Paul misquote? Was he confused? Was he, was he, was he putting together various verses or, or what exactly happened here? I think the simplest answer is this is what conquerors did when they conquered. First of all, they received. And then what did they do with the booty? They gave it to their people. And actually, if you go back to Psalm 68, those both of those aspects are there. So I think if we look a little wider in the psalm itself, we will find those two things. So in Psalm 68, verse 18, that's the one he quotes. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. But then if you look at verse 11, uh, no, verse 12, the kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil." Or where'd they get the spoil? Well, he's putting these two activities of the conqueror together. What's the conqueror do first? He receives the booty. Then what does he do? Gives it to his people. And that's what it says here in Ephesians 4. And then uh, there's this parenthetical statement in a saying, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all things that he might fill all things. There's also a huge body of literature about, about what's this descending and this ascending and so on. Um, but the point here is pretty simple. He has been everywhere, folks. There is nowhere that Jesus has not reached. He has gone as low as he can go, and he has gone now as high as he can go. And that therefore, he fills everything up. And this idea of fullness, we've already seen this throughout Ephesians. He he fills up every space and there is no region of space that he has not taken over and occupied for himself. And as that conqueror, as that conqueror who has been everywhere and conquered everything and put under his control all things, now he distributes the booty to the church, and what is the booty? Teachers. Teachers. And there are four or maybe five here. And we've seen two of these already. We've seen the apostles and prophets. They show up twice before this, in chapter 2, verse 20, and in chapter 3, verse 5. And we've seen that these apostles and these prophets were foundational for the church. They were unique. They weren't to be repeated. They laid the foundation, or they were part of that foundation of the church. So the apostles were unique eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ and the ministry of Christ, and the the prophets were their their companions who built on the teaching the apostolic eyewitness teaching and then we have parallel to them we have ordinary teachers we might say not these unique temporary extraordinary teachers apostles and prophets but we have ordinary teachers and who are they they're the evangelists, and I say ordinary. They may be extraordinary people, but they're ordinary in that they're during the whole life of the church. They're they're they they're throughout the whole uh, the whole church era, and they are first the evangelists. Evangelists are only mentioned twice. It's not uh, it's not a common category in the New Testament. But it's pretty obvious what they did, right? They took the gospel to where the gospel was not. What would we call those today? Yeah, we call them missionaries as well. So evangelists, missionaries, they're the ones that are pushing the frontiers out. And then we have the shepherds, or sometimes translated pastors and teachers. And the 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 question here is, are they the shepherds and the teachers, or are they the shepherd teachers? Because there's only one definite article. Here it says the shepherds and teachers, or the pastors and teachers. And I think we have a better idea of what these are. We know what a teacher is. Actually, the word pastor or shepherd is rarely used in Scripture as well in the New Testament to describe what I am and what I do. But but we have the this, this idea of the pastor who is a shepherd who takes care of the flock, who ministers to the flock, who serves the flock and teaches the word of God to the people. So these are the gifts. And then what's the point of these four gifts? Verse 12, to equip the saints, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We're building up the body of Christ. And here Paul goes on to the results until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he's saying, how are we going to be mature? Well, guess what? God has given us the gifts that we need for that. He's given us teachers in the church. And those, those teachers in the church are to equip all the members of the church so that the members might fulfill their function in the church. And the result is a, an increased maturity in the church toward the measure of Christ. And here he's, 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 he's saying, okay, you, you already are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Chapters 1-3. to three, And now you're growing up into Christ. You're growing up into the measure of Christ. We have the already... And we have the not yet that we're working on here. And and the the goal is to arrive at the, the height of Christ, the stature of Christ, the, the level of Christ, that the church should grow up into him as his body. There, there there's some who use the illustration of, you know, babies' heads are real big and their bodies are sort of little, and their bodies have to grow up into the head not an exact analogy here, but it's, it's sort of like that, that the, the body of, of Christ is, is, is small and, and it needs to grow up into the, the, the size of the, the head who is Jesus. That's the positive side. And then the negative is so that we don't, we don't get led astray. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. There was and always has been and is to this day a a, a host of of deceitful schemes, errors being propagated even under the name of Jesus. And if, if we are immature in our faith, untaught in our faith, then we are easy prey to these teachings. And Paul is saying you need to be mature. You need to be moving towards that the, the height of Christ so that when you hear these errors, these deceitful errors, that you're able to identify truth and error and say no, that you won't be led astray by these. Rather, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. So it's not just the, the teachers who speak, is it? It says rather speaking the truth in love. Everybody's speaking the truth in love. What's the truth? Well, it's this. So we all have a teaching function, don't we? So the teachers teach the congregation. And what's the congregation do? The congregation teaches itself as as we speak the truth to each other in love. What's the result? It says we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body. And here he kind of pulls out all the stops here with this body imagery here from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And there is a, a reflection on the human body here. What, what do children's bodies do when they when they're healthy? They grow. They grow and they, they have this automatic built in capacity to grow. And that's what he's saying here. That's how the body of Christ works. There is this built in capacity to grow. It's part of it. And as each joint and it's translated joint here, but it's each each connecting tissue, whatever that connecting tissue might be, that communicating tissue, whatever that might be as, as that's functioning properly, the whole thing grows up. And this is the 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 end result here that we're able to build ourselves up in love. So where have we been? God has created unity in the church. The spirit has made unity in the church and it's founded on all of these ones, the oneness of God above all. And we need to keep that unity. How can we keep that unity? Well, we keep that unity by the characteristics that he's described here. And we keep that unity by, by instructing and being instructed. And teaching each other so we might become more and more and more and more like Jesus the hat. As we all know, just because we are human bodies, even if we've never studied physiology, we all know that the human body is finely tuned. And that each of its parts is is amazing and, and essential. And if any of those parts is not doing what it's supposed to do, the whole body suffers, right? It, it, it's not a, a isolated thing. If if one part is not working properly, whatever that might be, it might be the smallest toenail on the smallest toe. And it's, it's exceedingly painful when the smallest toenail on the smallest toe is not, not working properly or is sick or infected or torn or whatever it might be. So, so every piece of the body has its part to play. And Paul says here, at the end of it, he says, when each part is working properly. Each part. In our bodies, we have bones that ties together. We have muscles that keep our bodies together. We have ligaments. We have tendons. We have blood that keeps the whole body together. We have fat cells. We have the lymph system. We have all of our digestive organs. We have the lungs. We have, we have the mind, of course, which, which is the command central that keeps everything together. It, it, it all works. It all works. Until it doesn't. Until one part doesn't. And then the whole thing has trouble. And that's what he says here. Folks, if we're going to experience this, this growing up into Christ... Every part, every part needs to function properly. Now, in the rest of Ephesians, we'll learn more and more about what that looks like for each part to function properly. But up to this point, we know at least that each part needs to walk in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing up with one another, being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and putting Christ's gifts to use, speaking to one another in love so that the whole body grows up into Christ. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this amazing image of the body here. And we have, each one of us, uh, an understanding of how that works when our bodies work like they should and when our bodies don't work like they should. And Lord, we pray that this body, your church, that, that we would keep that unity that you've already created, that we wouldn't mess it up, that we wouldn't sow discord or cause divisions, that we would rather we put up with each other with humility and gentleness and perseverance, eager to keep unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and putting our gifts to use so that we might build each other up as we speak the truth to each other in love and lord we pray for our church that if somebody comes to our church and we pray this for other churches that they wouldn't have a bad experience that they wouldn't see it as something that's optional, but they would find in our church a a beautiful picture of Christ and be drawn to Him. We pray in His name.